Good morning. We come to the end of 2020. We come to the end of this Advent season. And there's a quote I'd like to have in front of us. And we'll return to this a little bit later. But listen to this from my former chaplain in college, Will Williman. Our lives are eschatologically stretched. That's a big word, eschatologically. It's uh, the eschaton is the, the grand culmination of all things. So when all things come together, that's the eschaton. So our lives are eschatologically stretched between the sneak preview of the new world being born among us in the church and the old world where the principalities and powers are reluctant to give way. In the meantime, which is the only time the church has ever known, we live as those who know something about the fate of the world that the world does not yet know. And that makes us different. We have been looking at these remarkable birth narratives during this season of Advent because we are a different sort of people. We believe that there were these recorded instances in scripture that taught us about the fate of the world. We looked at some of these unique births that prefigured the coming of Christ. And by the way, just in terms of the feedback, we're getting lots of echo here. Is it I, they're, they're working on it, so we're all, we're all fine. It'll, it'll come together eventually, but you can still hear me, though, right? Okay. <laughs> we looked at several of these unique births that were foretelling of the birth of Christ. And what made these, these births so unique in the scriptures, these particular ones that we looked at, and last week was even John the Baptist, who technically was the last Old Testament saint, as it were. Each of these births that we looked at were exceptional and supernatural. They were unique because each of them were about the birth of someone who would become a deliverer and redeemer in their lifetime. But again, they were especially unique because we Christians are strange. We actually believe that all of these births were a prefiguring, a foretelling of the coming of Christ and his birth into this world. So we had our scripture texts this morning, the, the birth of Jacob, but then we followed it with the birth narrative of Christ himself and some of the words that were spoken about him as he was being born or coming into this world. So today, we are going to look more, more particularly at this birth of Jacob and what it has to tell us about this birth and really the rebirth of the people of God, of a whole nation, what God is doing in this world. Historically, the church has celebrated, um, and, and some of you know this already, but don't be embarrassed if you didn't, because... Frankly, I'm not sure I did before this, this season, this particular Advent. Historically, the church has celebrated not one Advent, but three Advents. Now, most of us think the church only celebrates the season of Advent, the coming of Christ. 
those of us in the graduate level of education in terms of our spirituality might understand, no, actually the church celebrates two Advents, the coming of Christ and the great second coming of Christ. But it takes like PhD level understanding of the, of the history of the church to understand, no, actually the church has always celebrated three Advents, the coming of Christ, that great second coming of Christ, one day when all things will be made right, like one of the songs we just finished singing. But in between, we celebrate a third advent, as it were, namely the coming of Christ in word and sacrament, wherever his people gather. Christ really is adventing himself into this world every Lord's day, all around the world where people gather. We know God as creator is present everywhere all the time, 24-7. But where is God as redeemer and savior present? Do we have to wait for the second coming to have Christ in his salvation present with us? Or does he come every time his people gather in his name? The saving presence of Christ is found as Redeemer. And so the church celebrates these three Advents. So we come to the close of this sort of season of Advent, but really we're going to continue to be living in the season of Advent, the coming of Christ every time we gather in his saving presence. His presence as a people, as a nation, as a church. This is what we are looking at today, this remarkable good news and how it can change everything for us in 2021. So let's pray now together. Heavenly Father, what good news it is that you did not forsake this world and abandon us but you sent Christ into this world. We have celebrated his coming into this world. And what good news it is that, as we've already sung this morning, you are coming again to make all things new, all things subsumed and consummated in love, where light purifies everything, and there's nothing but joy and gladness. But what good news it is that we don't have to just simply wait for that day, pessimistically twiddling our thumbs, just trying to stick in there, but that this wonderful good, good news that you are actually coming to be with us in word and sacrament wherever your people gather. What good news that is, Lord Jesus, that you've not forsaken us. So with this simple and yet profound story from the scriptures of Jacob's birth, teach us, illuminate us this day. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So we'll look now at this idea, this birth and rebirth of a nation under three headings. And then we'll have several points of conclusion. So as we move through the, the three parts of the sermon, there's still one wonderful part at the end, a conclusion. But here's the three parts of the sermon. We'll first look at Jacob's birth and the problem of sin. Secondly, we'll take a look at Jacob's rebirth and the nature of faith. And then finally, we'll, take, we'll sort of circle back a bit, looking at Jacob's life a bit, and take a look at Jacob's schemings and strivings and how they are redeemed. So Jacob's birth and the problem of sin, Jacob's rebirth and the nature of faith, 
and then Jacob's schemings and strivings and how they are redeemed. So you heard for us, thanks to Pete, our scripture was read already this morning, Genesis 25, the account of Jacob's birth. And you saw in there that as he, these, these twins are, are in, um, in, in Sarah, uh, wait, it, it is Sarah, right? Wait, duh, I'm sorry. I'm, Sarah was Isaac's mother. So anyway, um, Rebecca, Sarah's, Isaac's wife. Within her, these twins. And they're, they're kicking and they're striving even within the womb. But then as they, as they are birthed, first Esau comes out and he's all kind of red. And so they name him Esau, which means red. And then Jacob comes out and he is this little infant grabbing the heel of his slightly older brother, and so they call him the one who grabs, who grasps, and it was a figure of speech grabbing the heel for a deceiver. So he's named the deceiver. Now, we're going to get to a, a moment later in Jacob's life, thankfully, You've, you, you see it coming, praise the Lord, where he gets renamed, this time by God. What would it be like to carry this name your whole life, the deceiver? That's what your parents named you, just because you, as a one-second-old little baby, happened to be grabbing the heel of some, the, some object in your purview. So you're, you're, you're just called the deceiver. And in fact, that's your nickname your whole life. And in fact, the scriptures, it, even in Jeremiah, you see that it becomes um, sort of a curse um, that later in the scriptures, um, Jeremiah 9, verse 4, um, God is describing a, a, a sad season in the life of Israel where every brother is a deceiving Jacob. So this, this name Jacob, it just meant the deceiver. Now, when I was little, my, my mother, as some of you know, raises Cairn Terriers, and there was a new litter of puppies being born up in, when we visited um, the, the kennel up in Sharon, Connecticut, where my grandparents were. And there were three puppies, and there were three of us children, so we each got the privilege of naming one of the puppies. So one of the puppies was predominantly black, and so my sister named her Blackie. One of the puppies seemed to just be, was hyper and running all over the place. And so my brother named that puppy Runny Run. Now, you can be forgiving. My brother was like three years old at the time. And then the other puppy, when it was running through the tall grass, it would get stuck. And so I named it Stucky. <laughs> I put as much, about as much thought into that as apparently Jacob's parents put into naming him. I mean, it's really a thoughtless name. And it marked him. And he grew up being known as the deceiver. And he plainly internalizes it. And as such, he is a picture of who we are. The scriptures teach that all of us are born in sin. It seems so unfair to be called a sinner. One split second as you're, as, after you're being born, you're called a sinner. It just seems so unfair. The scriptures say we're born in sin, 
The scriptures explain that by saying, in Adam, all die. If you are a human being, if Adam and Eve are your first parents, then in Adam, you died. I died. We all died. It just seems so unfair. And as such, Jacob is a picture of humanity, of all of us born in sin. Jacob's birth reveals the very problem of sin. Now, listen to how Pascal phrases all of this. This French philosopher back in the 1600s, this theologian, this mathematician, this very famous mathematician, of course, this inventor. But as he studied this whole idea of being born in sin, being by nature a Jacob, we're all Jacob, as it were. This is what he, he wrote. For it is beyond doubt that there is nothing which more shocks our reason than to say that the sin of the first man has rendered guilty those who, being so removed from this source, seem incapable of participation in it. This transmission of sin does not only seem to us impossible, it seems also very unjust. For what is more contrary to the rules of our miserable justice than to damn eternally an infant incapable of will, for a sin wherein he seems to have so little a share that was committed thousands and thousands of years before he was even brought into existence. Now listen to what he says. Certainly nothing offends us more rudely than this doctrine. And yet, without this mystery, the most incomprehensible of all, we are incomprehensible to ourselves. Let me say that again. Without this mystery, the most incomprehensible of all, we are incomprehensible to ourselves. The knot of our condition takes its twists and turns in this abyss so that man is more inconceivable without this mystery than this mystery is inconceivable to man. So Pascal is saying something profound there something that really human history has borne out, something that your own personal experience has borne out, which is that being a sinner is part and parcel of our nature now. None of us have ever met, nor are we ourselves, anyone that is pure and upright in all their thoughts and words. And none of us have ever met such a... And so what accounts for that? What accounts for the fact that no one has ever been born naturally who isn't a sinner? What accounts for that? It's an incomprehensible mystery. Answered, though, by this other incomprehensible mystery of Adam's sin being transmitted to us, Jacob being born and just labeled a deceiver, and he, he then internalizing that and living his whole life, as it were, as a deceiver. You know what ends up happening in his life story, if you're familiar with the scriptures. That he waits for a moment when his older brother, older by just a moment, but the older brother is, has the, the firstborn, all the rights of being the firstborn, the birthright. He waits for a moment when his brother is hungry and famished. And he tricks his brother 
Will you give me the privilege of your birthright for this pot of stew that I'm cooking up that smells so good? And his brother thinks, that can't be what he's really getting at. I just want the stew. Sure, sure, sure. And so he tricks Esau. And then later, he waits for a moment when his brother Esau, who's about to get the blessing of Isaac, their father, all the blessings of the, of the covenant of God from Abraham down to Isaac, now going to be passed down to Esau. And so Esau goes out to prepare the meal for this great celebration. But Jacob, together with his mother, scheme and deceive and figure out a way to sneak in and steal the blessing, trick the father who is blind by then in, in age, and he puts on goatskin around his neck and his hands because his older brother Esau was hairy and, and he himself was, was uh, fair-skinned. And so he puts on sort of goatskin so that he'll appear like Esau to his father's touch. And he puts on Esau's clothing. He clothes himself in all of his brother's robes and garments and presents this meal to him that his mother has prepared and gets the blessing. This deceiver lives a life of deception. But you see, we would never in a thousand years want to end a sermon <laughs> or a worship service or our conception of the Christian faith or our conception of ourselves with this. The reason why this mystery is so profound and so necessary of Adam's sin being transmitted to us apart from our actions is that there is going to be another who will be born. Christ himself, whose life of righteousness will be transferred to us apart from our actions. And so we see that this birth of Jacob really is a prefiguring of the birth of Christ. And we're not just making this up we are saying this with the authority of Scripture because of the Scripture that, again, Pete read for us. That upon the birth of Christ, the angel says to Mary, this one in your womb will reign over the house of Jacob forever. He is the fulfillment of the house of Jacob. He is a better Jacob. And in case we missed it, that question is asked explicitly of Jesus in John chapter 4 when the people of, of God at that time say, wait a minute. Are you actually saying that you are greater than our father Jacob? To ask the question is to answer it. This Jesus comes along who is greater even than Jacob, who is the fulfillment of Jacob, who transforms everything about Jacob's birth and the story and the problem of sin and our fallen nature. One of the best Christmas verses of all is this, this short little passage in Galatians 4, starting at verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, all these different birth narratives had to foreshadow, up and leading up until the one we did last week, John the Baptist's own birth as a, as a foreshadowing of Christ's birth just a few months later. The fullness of time had to come, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. Not apart from the law, 
Not floating above it. Not refusing to get his hands dirty. Born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. Born under the law, not to then do nothing or to just give us a a fun little story. Hey, this birth of Jesus is better than Jacob's birth. That's awesome. Let's just look at it. Let's just, just like this beautiful painting, let's just let the beauty of it soak in. There's something deeper that Jesus did. He was born under law to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. Jacob wanting to be known as the beloved son and scheming to try to get it. Jesus now coming and saying, I will declare you the beloved son, not by your scheming, but by you letting go of your scheming and accepting all that I have for you. And so Jacob's birth, which highlights the problem of sin, highlights even more Christ and his birth, which redeems those of us born into this world. And as you, if you were listening with, with antenna ears or whatever, like, you know, very attuned, when I made reference to the scriptures teaching this principle of sin transmitting to us, in Adam all die, you would have said in your heart, but that's not the end of that verse. Because the verse in Romans says, in Adam all die, but in Christ all are made alive. Jacob is who we are, but now Christ is who we are. He brings us in and makes us sons and daughters, just like he is the beloved son. So there it is, Jacob's birth, the problem of sin. But the story of Jacob is much more profound even than all that. So we move to the second bit. Because Jacob's life as it goes on has this remarkable moment where he gets renamed. So Jacob's rebirth, his renaming, which highlights the nature of faith. That's what we're going to look at now. Jacob's rebirth and the nature of faith. If we fast forward just a bit in Jacob's life, you come to Jacob, excuse me, to Genesis chapter 32. And here's the story. The same night Jacob rose and took his two wives, his servants, his children, crossed the ford of the Jabbok. Now, if you remember, this is all Jacob has deceived his brother Esau, and he's gone off and made a life for himself. But now as he comes back, he gets word that Esau is coming to meet him. And Jacob, who has essentially stolen everything from Esau, and Jacob is described as sort of someone that loved living in tents, whereas Esau is described as a hunter. So now Jacob knows Esau's coming to meet me, and he's terrified. So he has everything he cares about. He sends it across the Jabbok River, and then he was left alone. And it says here, now whether this happened really and truly in a way that if you'd been an observer, you would have seen it happening, or whether this was just a, 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 the whole length of the evening dream that Jacob had, which is what Calvin thought, it doesn't really matter. Jacob has a real encounter with this man. <laughs> this man, interesting. 
Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then the man said, let me go, for the day has broken. We're, we're done, right? But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the man said, what is your name? And Jacob said, Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be called Runny Run, shall no longer be called Stucky. It will no longer be this stupid nickname. Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Because Israel means he who strives with, wrestles with El, with God, Elohim. The one who wrestles with, who strives with God. This is the new name, not some dumb nickname. Will this name then be internalized by, by Jacob and by all of us? That's the question. But then Jacob asks him, so please tell me your name. But the man said, why is it that you ask my name? And then he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of that place the face of God, Peniel, because I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. I was expecting Esau to come and encounter me and kill me. And that was simply my conscience speaking something deeper. I was actually expecting God himself to come and encounter me and destroy me for my sinfulness. That's what I was encountering. That's what I was expecting in this encounter. But I met with God face to face and received deliverance, received grace, received redemption. This is the rebirth of Jacob. This is the rebirth of the whole nation. This is the first occurrence of the word Israel in all of Scripture. This is why Israel, the name, the word, is meant to characterize all of us. Will we internalize this identity? as the people that actually encounter God and wrestle with God. I don't know if you got here quite early enough to read the meditation prior to the service, but let me read it for us now, a short and wonderful little sermon by an Anglican poet. I think he's in England, although he might be in Ireland. Anyway, here, this Malcolm Geet, Jacob wrestles with the angel. I dare not face my brother in the morning. I dare not look upon the things I've done. I dare not ignore a nightmare's dreadful warning. I dare not endure the rising of the sun. My family, my goods are sent before me. I cannot sleep on this strange river shore. I have betrayed the son of one who bore me, and my own soul rejects me to the core. But in the desert darkness, one has found me, embracing me. He will not let me go, nor will I let him go, whose arms surround me, until he tells me all I need to know and blesses me where daybreak stakes its claim with love that wounds and heals and with his name.
daybreak is staking its claim on all of us today. The daybreak of a new year. And we're met by this love that wounds and heals. We're met with this very name, this blessing. It's obvious enough that this, this whole passage is meant to be remembered forever by the people of Israel, remembered forever by the people of God. I mean, that's obvious enough, but in, in case we needed extra help memory devices, I love how the author uses, and I'm, I'm not fluent at all in Hebrew. I passed my Hebrew courses in seminary, so functionally some, somewhat helpful. But anyway, in the Hebrew, this verb is for wrestling, God wrestling, is yabek. And Jacob's name in the Hebrew is Yaqab. And the name of the river is Yabak. So here it is, Yabek, Yakab, Yabak. Ganip, Ganap. Yabek, Yakab, Yabak. Yabek, Yakab, Yabak. So actually, just not to be facetious and not as a uh, uh, um, semantic device here, but actually everybody take a moment, whether you're at home, YouTubing or whatever, or right here, and just say out loud, if you can, repeat after me, I'll say it one more time, Yabek, Yakab, Yabak. Okay, ready? Yabek, Yakab, Yabak. Yabek, Yakab, Yabak. Yabek, Yakab, Yabak. God wrestled with Jacob by the Jabbok. So we're meant to remember this. Now, maybe you'll remember the three Hebrew words. That'd be kind of fun. But what you, of course, must remember is God coming to meet you by grace. This encounter that God has with you. And when does he meet you by grace? Again, back to what we've been saying. There was this remarkable first advent. There will be a remarkable second advent. But he comes and advents himself. He meets with you by grace in every worship service. Every time two or three of us gather in his name, he meets with us by grace. That must be remembered. Maybe you'll remember the three Hebrew words, but remember God meeting you by grace. Be marked by that. Remember as well, there's... Why did that encounter even happen? Why did the wrestling even happen? Because God initiated and came and met him. The passage said Jacob was left there alone. God could have, in justice, given Jacob what he deserved and left him alone. You have been a deceiver. You have damaged people's lives. I will just leave you and abandon you there all by yourself. You will be Jacob forever. The reason the encounter even happened in the first place was the grace of God. This God who initiates constantly and continually and is always initiating. Every time the sun comes up, this is God initiating his common grace to this world. And that's going to happen every day the rest of your life without fail, but he, by his saving grace, is initiating every time you, your faith rem reminds yourself that he is present. Every time you gather and worship, again, gather with anyone else in his name, God has initiated by grace. We love because he first loved us, and we're given this new name. We're given this new name. But you see, this rebirth is also, it highlights the very nature of faith. We've been saying this, but, but again, this idea that faith is this encountering God, this wrestling with God, this striving with God, this not letting him go until he blesses you. 
And there was this remarkable change in Jacob's perception of reality. His whole life to this point, he had been striving after the gifts of God, the blessings that he needed in this world, the blessings of being the firstborn, even the eternal blessings of getting the birthright in the Abrahamic covenant. He was striving after the gifts while the giver himself seemed to be a far, far second place priority for Jacob. But in that moment, we see he's changed. Now all he really wants is God himself. And if the gifts will flow from that, which they will in God's timing and purposes, then that's fine with Jacob. But what he really wants is the giver. 2020 has taken so much from so many of us. 2021 will do the same in some ways. It may give, a, give wonderful new things as well. Life is always a wonderful mixture of tide coming in, tide going out. But here's, of course, the question that's posed before us really every time Christ encounters us. Is he the pearl of great price for which you're willing to sell everything else or not? If 2021 were to promise for you the increase of everything but a decrease in your relationship with God, would you take that deal? Or what if 2021 were to promise the other thing, that you'll have less of everything by the end of 2021, but more of God? Would you take that deal? I don't think it'll, every deal is ever offered that harshly, so don't worry too much, but it's a rhetorical point, and there's only one right answer. <laughs> there is a great day coming where we get more of God and more of his gifts in unending ways, but that's not the nature of this present evil age. We get more of him every time we hold on to him. That's what's promised. And we may well get more of his gifts, better relationships, more finances, more health. That's according to his sovereign providence and his wisdom. But what we're always promised is more of him himself. We are given this new name in baptism. We are now called Christian. We're given the name Christ. And you remember what it says this great mystery of the faith, Christ is now in us, the hope of glory. That's what wrestling with God, that's what faith looks like. Christ in me, the hope of glory. That's a wonderful phrase, probably a better phrase to, remember, to memorize than yabak, yakab, yabak. The phrase, Christ in me, the hope of glory. Notice what that phrase is saying. This, it used to be um, Jacob essentially saying, Give me more of me. That will be my hope in this world. Me in me, the hope of glory. I hope in 2021, I get more self-actualized. That's glory. Me in me, the hope of glory. Or, or some totally misunderstand and think that the nature of the Christian life is Christ apart from me, the hope of glory. Christ is indifferent towards me. I just worship and praise him. No, the mystery is this clinging, this wrestling, this holding on. Christ in me, the hope of glory. Not me in me, the hope of glory. Not Christ apart from me, the hope of glory. But Christ in me, the hope of glory. The final bit 
that we want to take a look at is these schemings and strivings of Jacob and how his life was redeemed in that way. And it's remarkable what Christ does in all this. And we are given these types, these foreshadowings, these moments in Old Testament history. For example, when Moses strikes the rock, and then we find out later in Hebrews, that was a prefiguring of Christ being struck, Christ the rock, and from him come streams of living water. And we see this weird moment where Jacob puts on Esau's clothes and Esau's skin even and gets a blessing from his father. And a schemer got that. But here in Christ, we see a remarkably different picture, don't we? And it's, it's, it's shown for us in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. This idea that Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us. That in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus puts on our flesh, our sin, and in exchange gives us his flesh, his righteousness. Jacob's schemings and strivings, even those are redeemed by giving us this picture of Christ taking our place to win the Father's blessing for us. If I may, I'd like to just read a, a short little excerpt from one of the prayer letters we got from our newest Mission Anabino missionary, Mark Bocanegra, planting a church in, in Tokyo. And as he's there, he is, he's working with an established church whose pastor is about to retire. And so he's been visiting the different small groups in the life of the church and encouraging them in the gospel. And he's found that there's this remarkable, if I can pull it up here, this, this remarkable little uh, illustration that he uses that has been so helpful for the people in his community who are very uh, highly educated and very driven. And he uses this Example with them, that's essentially what we just talked about from 2 Corinthians 5. But he uses it in the sense of a test. And he says to these people in the small group, and he gives us the story of how he's visiting these small groups, and he says, now imagine that God gives you a test, and you do need to score 100% on it. And so you take the test, and you turn it back into God, and God marks it all up with red ink. But then Jesus comes along and he takes the test and he gets a perfect score. But before he turns it in, he offers to you, would you like me to sign your name on this test? And further, would you like me to take your test back, cross out your name and sign my name so that I will bear all the consequences of your failures and you will get all the privileges of my blessing. It's a remarkable illustration, but what Mark Bocanegra says is that this people are just, their eyes are opening. And one person said, I literally have never thought of it that way. I thought the whole Christian life was an attempt to make God happy with me. I had no idea he had already accepted me 
by the grace of Christ. This changes everything. Faith changes everything. 2021 is this remarkable moment of a new beginning, an opportunity to begin again. Our remarkable artist, Makoto Fujimura, who created this work of art, this Japanese-American artist, he also has written some remarkable books, including this book, Silence and Beauty. And it's a meditation on the faith of Christians in Japan after Hiroshima, the faith of Christians in Japan after the first missionaries came and were martyred. It's a meditation on his own faith after 9-11 and so on and so on. And this is what he says near the end of the book. We discover that words of pain, of brokenness and trauma, words of wrestling are not the end. We reach the nadir of experience. We, end in, we come to this seeming end of the deepest depths of darkness. But precisely in such a place, a new beginning is possible. However faintly, however unexpectedly, we retain our faith. And there is now a resiliency in our faith that did not exist before. What if these experiences of death, what if these experiences of wrestling with God are not the end, but the beginning of a new journey? The season of Advent comes to an end, and yet it begins again. This new journey, 2020, comes to an end. This is the opportunity for new beginnings in 2021. As we put off the flesh, put off the Jacob, and put on Israel, put on Christian, put on Christ. Finally this, the missionary Leslie Newbegin, he was frequently asked, he was a missionary in India, and he was frequently asked, um, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of the gospel in India? Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of the gospel in 2021? Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the nature of life in C at CPC in 2021? Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the nature of life in America in 2021? And this is how he learned to answer it. He developed a standard reply. I believe in the resurrection of Jesus, and therefore the question does not arise. <laughs> and then he goes on to explain. You see, the gospel is news of a fact. And regarding a fact, one is not pessimistic or optimistic. The question is, do you believe it or not believe it? Yes, personal experience may give rise to pessimism and leave us cynical, but the greater reality of this new birth in Christ, the reality of the resurrection allows us to maintain confidence in all we endure, in all that God has for us in this time of new beginnings. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the life of Jacob. We thank you for you meeting him by grace and changing everything. 
We thank you even more for the coming of Christ who transformed everything. And now we thank you for our lives and that you are not leaving us or abandoning us alone by the Javik River, nor are you coming to meet us with judgment and harshness, but rather we thank you for the lives you've given us, lives where you are constantly meeting us with your grace. Strengthen our faith, O Lord, that all day long, all week long, all month long, all year long, all life long, we may grasp onto your grace, knowing that even when we slip and fall, you are holding us and will never let go of us. Give us that confidence now, not an optimism or a pessimism, but a belief in the resurrection, in the ascension, in the advent of Christ. In his name we pray, amen.